0: Welcome to The Reesh Show, I'm your host, Reesh Chaudhary, and today's episode is based off an essay I wrote called Education, Democracy, and Demagoguery. The original link to the article will be in the description. Socrates expressed his views on democracy by asking, would you like a ship to be captained by anyone or those who are educated in the art of sailing? He was arguing not for a democracy open to everyone, neither for rule by the elites, Instead, he demanded only the educated be given the vote. Socrates believed that voting was not instinctual. Its methodology had to be taught. Imagine if before taking off, passengers elected from among them a pilot for their plane. A citizenry untrained in the art of the vote is the biggest corruption a government can commit. Imagine two candidates in an election. The first one sells ice cream and the second one is a dentist. The ice cream seller tells the people, I give you sweets, pleasure, happiness, relief on a hot summer day. My opponent, the dentist, tells you what you can or cannot eat, he tells you what your routine should be, that you should brush and floss, and if you do not listen to him, he pulls out your teeth. He's demanding, and if you do not follow him, he gives you pain and a bloody mouth. The dentist will counter, I tell you what to do and cause you pain because I know what is good for you. Who will the voters choose? Imagine the reaction of the public when they hear the dentist. This will be a landslide victory for only one person. Too often, we elect these ice cream sellers. Their sweet, masking the carnage slowly caused, unrealized until it becomes impossible to eat, rotten parasites sucking blood. The prevention of demagogues can only happen if the citizenry is educated in the art of voting. The numerous subjects of the social sciences, such as philosophy, economics, finance, and management, in addition to a focus on rationality, will create a defense against demagogues. Education is a protein of democracy. In its absence, democracy whimpers into a fall. In today's show, I'm joined by two guests who will be providing some analysis and commentary on what Socrates said. Why don't you introduce yourselves, gentlemen?
1: Hey, Rish, it's great to be here. My name is Alex guys, also known as the Armchair Philosopher. You guys can find me on social media at the Armchair Philosopher. I'm really excited to be talking with you today.
2: And I am Nick Becht, uh, known as Nick Becht, and you guys can find me on social media at Nick nickbechtfitz.
0: Awesome. Definitely check them out. Their links will be in the description. All right, Alex, why don't we start with you? What do you think, the what does the armchair philosopher think about what Socrates, the most prominent Athenian from the birthplace of democracy, had to say about democracy?
1: Just starting off, I wholly agree with the idea that democracy has flaws. And I think that most people would agree as well if they took a second to really break down and think about what a pure democracy means. So first we should differentiate between the way democracy is used nowadays to mean a system of government in which uh, people have the power is vested in the people and how it was used in the founding of our country, America, and also in the time period of Socrates, which usually referred to a direct democracy where every single person's voice and vote was heard on each and every single issue. Something that is usually um, quite contentious, even though it shouldn't be, is whether or not America was founded as a republic or as a democracy. And I think it's quite clear that it was founded as a constitutional republic or a constitutional democracy, kind of smearing those two terms together. The the differentiating factor between a republic and a democracy is in a direct democracy or a pure democracy or a true democracy, using whichever term you prefer, the will of the majority supersedes everything else. So any law can be enacted, which the majority agrees upon. And it's easy to see the flaw of that as soon as you take it to an extreme. So if 51% of the population in a direct democracy or pure democracy voted on a law that allowed the murdering of a group of people, that law would go into effect. In a republic, you have a constitutional document or another legal document where the supreme law supersedes everything else and then you have elected representatives who carry out further legislation but they cannot enact laws which um, would go in contradiction to that constitution so in america obviously you cannot pass a law like that because of the fact that we are not a direct democracy the federalist papers which i definitely recommend um, anybody who hasn't read should read through the federalist papers they're in my opinion, required reading for really understanding the intention behind the founding of America. And James Madison, the father of the Constitution, who's actually the author of the Federalist Papers, he says in um, Federalist Papers number 10, hence it is such that democracies have have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. So what he's saying right there basically is, again, there are flaws with a direct democracy. When the, when America was set up, it wasn't set up as a direct democracy, specifically because of the fears of demagoguery. And we can see some of that in American politics nowadays, the way that everything has been reduced to slogans or bumper stickers, quick surface-level arguments that are designed to inflame people's passions and make them feel passionate enough to get out and get to the voting um, booth but not informed enough to make a, a smart decision on what they're voting on. Um, the other issue I would ha- I have with the, the whole get out the vote campaign that we see in modern America right now is there's this massive push to get as many people as possible into the polling center, into the voting center. But largely, the average citizen is not nearly as informed about politics, law or civic um, responsibility as they should be. And I honestly, I can't see how it's beneficial to have uneducated people voting on topics that they don't understand. And this isn't, you know, me preaching from a soapbox of like, you know, I'm super informed on all the issues and you aren't, so you shouldn't be allowed to vote and I should. I don't believe in restricting people's right to vote by by group or anything like that. I just think that sometimes we focus too much on allowing everybody access to vote without thinking about whether or not they really are educated enough to be voting. In my own personal life, I know a lot of people who spend more time on Twitter, on Instagram, on social media, watching reality TV shows and they do, consuming um, politics or news or current affairs and current events. And me personally, I went into the voting booth in the re- most recent election, um, and there was multiple amendments in legislation in the Virginia state legislature that I had to vote on, which I wasn't informed on. And when you're asking me a question about whether or not we should authorize $65 billion in our budget to go towards a certain program, how can I make that... That decision when i have no idea what the program is and i have to make it within you know two minutes when i'm standing there in the voting booth i have to decide 65 million dollars like are we going to spend it on this or that and this decision is made by by people who are largely manipulated by politicians i would say demagoguery has become pretty much the norm in american politics nowadays because people's attention spans are so short and politicians look to really again inflame people's passions and get them to the voting booth no matter what because they assume that they're going to be on their team because they identify a certain way, right, so if you're a Republican, you're going to vote for the Republican what the Republican tells you to vote for, whether or not you actually agree with what they're telling you to vote for because you're not informed enough to make that decision yourself
0: you You brought up a lot of good points, and I definitely want to want to grill you a bit on that and just try to you know try to understand fully your rationality, but before we do that, I also want to hear what Nick has to say, so why don't you take it away?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in America we can't. Really determine who votes at this point. I think that's a really hard uh, hurdle to get over. Um, that I, th- I I doubt that uh, we'll actually be able to get over. Um, however, what we can do is work on fix- fixing things um, from the top down and the bottom up, not just from one. So it's not just our leaders; it's not just our constituents; it's both. I mean, take for instance when we're you know watching a presidential debate, they're only giving them maybe at the most five minutes to speak on a single topic. I think the last presidential debate was two minutes, 120 seconds to talk about a topic that you could dive deep into that one topic for probably an entire day's worth of discussion. So we're really just kind of giving our constituents little blurbs. Our leaders are giving our constituents all these little blurbs and and small inputs about a large scale um, issue. Like, as, as Alex pointed out, those 65 or $650 million bills or $65 million, the, the regular human can't even quantify or qualify what $65 million even does to that program or that policy. Um, so why are we allowing our constituents to vote on that? Um, cause they don't, they don't have anything to compare with that. You know, they, they take home $60,000 a year. They've never seen $65 million. They don't know the impact on that. Um, But, you know, what I see a lot with the constituents is that often individuals avoid the judgment of their peers because they're afraid to share their opinions. Um, And so what tends to happen is the most popular opinion tends to gain the most traction. And not in all cases is the popular opinion the, the right one, Right. We can't really, you know, choose what the right decision is just based on the popular decision. So I see that Socrates really did view that as probably the reason to why he made that assertion in the first place.
0: You know, both of you brought up an interesting point about topics being explained. And Nick, you just said about how, you know, the, the these during the debate, the conversation, the conversation on each topic is about two minutes these, this past election. And Alex, you also touched on the education of the voters, right? But see, here's the not, not exactly education of the voters, but more the information coming in to the voters. However, here's the thing. There are so many topics which a government must delve in, right? From economics to criminology to science and so on and so forth. Simply speaking, the average person is not educated in all of these topics. And what's worse is that when you become eligible to vote at the age of 18, usually that's when your systematic education ends. So that means for your entire life as a voter, you're not really getting education until you act, unless you actively seek it out. And even then, how many people have the time to do that or the resources to do that? So even if if we had candidates on the debate platform discussing, say, criminal law or contract law, how many people are actually educated in those fields to make good decisions regarding those fields? And I'll tell you from my own experience, look, I ha- I'm a business student so I got a pretty decent education in economics but if you were to ask me hey what's your opinion or what do you what are you, wh- you going to vote for regarding this policy on the penitentiary pen- system I couldn't help you out at all because once again I'm not educated in those fields at all so when you when you bring up this point of leaders and the government really sharing education with the public i mean how how effective will that really be
2: right and I mean, I think that when I was talking about uh the constituents earlier, them being capable of absorbing information is really something important because when you're not not many people sit down and listen to a debate all too often, and if they do. Are they really listening are they really understanding everything that's coming out of our leaders mouths no not particularly which is why i think it's more important to have these longer conversations and encourage um some sort of education that's going to actually help the constituents understand how to uh critically think about these things like philosophy and uh psychology and so on it gives them a basis to uh to actually think deeper
0: but don't you think this could be manipulated?
2: Absolutely.
1: So, into both of you, I think are bringing a very valid, you know, critiques and, and points. I think the founders, though, did take. Into, obviously, our world has changed a lot since the founding of our country, but I think the founders did take a lot of this into consideration, which is exactly why they their initial attempt at government, the Articles of Confederation, was even looser than the Constitution was. There was almost no centralized or federal form of government and then they realized that they needed a slightly stronger form of federal government which is why we have slightly more federal powers that are enumerated in the constitution but what we've seen in in modern times is not the idea of the united states of america right there's there's a reason that our country is named the united states of america and not america we're not america as a country we're the united states of america the idea is decentralized localized government actually solves a lot of these issues, the The policy. Um, so the policy issues affect lots of different demographics very differently. And it, when you distill that down to certain groups, certain areas, you get a much more representative vote. So if I elect someone in my local county or my local state to enact certain legislation, it's a smaller population that's voting, and you have a less chance of a minority voice being suppressed. If you have of the country who believes one thing and they're not being heard, that's a large group of people who feel like they're being suppressed. If you have more of a decentralized um, government with a more of a focus on local government, that problem kind of eases itself out because you have local communities that are able to vote on and enact legislation and have these conversations in a more nuanced fashion for how it's going to affect their local community.
0: I strongly believe that there needs to be more participation and more interest in the local government because it will be much more responsive. However, because of the way, you know, how we sens- sensationalize our media and how we are attracted to power, we tend to focus a lot more on the central government. However, even when you're regarding, even when you're just looking at, say, local government, a local government is going to make decisions regarding, say, police. They're going to make decisions regarding infrastructure. and tax laws etc etc and once again we run back into that same problem and which is what socrates main point was that simply speaking you're not going to be educated in all of those fields yet you're going to be making a decision regarding those fields and at the local level every single vote is magnified every single vote has even more power and at this and it's going to affect your life more immediately and more quickly so at such a crucial level not having a populace which is properly systematically educated in many fields, including you know rationality and economic policy and so on and so forth, well, h- how would you deal with that? H- how would that actually work in the way that Socrates wants it to work?
1: So I think that what, basically what you're getting at is, I believe it was uh, Jose Marti, I want to say, a Cuban revolutionary who said that the first duty of a man is to think for himself. And the civic responsibility and civic duty of every single citizen is to be informed and to basically train or work out in the same way you would work out your biceps or another muscle group to train your mind to work out your mind to um, deepen your logos, right your ability to perform rational thinking so it it doesn't matter if you're super informed on policing policies if you have a responsible politician at a local level again smaller is always better because it, it they can directly speak to the people rationally on how it's going to affect them who can espouse to you the the way the what the policy is the ways the policies are going to affect you and kind of educate you and if you know how to think not taught what to think but rather know how to think and you have that responsibility upon yourself to listen and to rationalize the argument, you can make an informed decision, even if you're not an expert in whatever the subject matter is. Right. And I think that kind of goes back to what, um, I believe Nick was saying about these presidential debates that we have, for example, where you have two minute sound bites of like, how, how much of an ad hominem can I attack? Can I do to the other person to smear them? So that the public, so I get a great clip from the debate so that the public opinion sways the other direction. Right. And the way that the American, um, Politic- political atmosphere is so so celebritized it's like a reality TV show almost where it focuses more on the the personal lives and the character traits of the politicians themselves and demonizing one or idolizing the other as opposed to talking about actual policy positions and i think this is most obvious in the recent presidential election with the joe biden campaign there wasn't a lot of talk about policy it was just how evil the incumbent president was and how horrible he was and how Joe Biden was a better human being. And that's all well and good, but that doesn't really inform people about how your government administration is going to affect them personally. So I think that there's a double um, double, a facet of responsibility here. It's on each individual civic, or citizen rather, it's their civic duty to be informed and to enable rational thinking and train their minds to think rationally. And then it's also responsibility of politicians to act honestly and honorably and not engage in demagoguery because there's, there's no way that you're going to stamp out the evilness of human nature. Demagoguery exists because it is very easy to inflame people's passions to achieve whatever your ends are. That's never going to really go away. Even whether or not you have a majority or I'm sorry, a representative democracy or a direct democracy, you still have the, the possibility of demagoguery, right? And the Electoral College gets a lot of flack for, um, and the structure of government in our country gets a lot of flack for being designed the way it is because of deadlocking and because of the Electoral College, oftentimes you'll have presidents elected who don't necessarily win the popular vote. But the reason it's set up that way is to encourage discourse between groups that disagree. If you would like to enact something, you necessarily have to talk to the other side, right? You have to be able to have a conversation and have middle ground. And I think that um to circle back to my previous point the the more the weaker or more decentralized power is, the more localized it is, the better it is because the less people you affect with certain policies and certain decisions. so if there is a contentious policy that is put in place, it is not as suppressive or not as oppressing to a larger group of people who have vastly different lifestyles
0: one hundred percent i I agree with you, however I have one question for you you mentioned. A focus on logos, right? You mentioned that voters can make their own minds up if they're trained correctly in the art of logos. And that right now in the United States, and I would add the world, there is a focus on pathos as the only way that politicians seem to convince anyone or try to win. However, do you believe that the citizenry is actually adequately trained in logos? Absolutely not. I think that
1: this is a deeper philosophical problem. Post-World War II, you had a a kind of um, a kickback or a recoil from Logos because we saw what the absolute limits and horrible um, end results of pure Logos' and scientific method could be with the atomic bomb and the amount of destruction, devastation that happened in World War II, right? That was pure Logos, pure scientific method that led to those results. And so people kind of There's this postmodern surge that you see post-World War II where people almost defaulted to a religious worldview where they have – there's a lot of tribalism nowadays where people have belief systems that they identify with, whether it's political or otherwise, that they don't fully evaluate. They accept what they're taught to think as opposed to being taught how to think, whereas previously, I would say Enlightenment thinking and Enlightenment rationale was – Kind of the norm, where it wasn't necessarily you're being taught how to or what to think, but rather how to think for yourself.
0: All uh, right. Real quick, I just want to just want to drop in. So you said religious thinking. I just want to make make sure that the wording is correct. So more like, uh, would you say zealot thinking or passionate thinking? Yeah. So
1: people reading? people often um, define religious thinking as Group ascribing to a certain organized religion or a certain mythos or a certain dogma. But but religious thinking is could be more equivalent more. Um, equivocally be understood as as faith, right? Belief in a system that you are taught without questioning. So,
0: oh, okay, gotcha.
1: And I think that the the response to to the the denial almost of logos or the the superseding of logos with pathos was a response to the fact that there was a religious attachment to the idea of enlightened values of rational thinking for a long time, and people saw the results of that, and so they defaulted to to religious organization or tribal organization. And I don't mean religious in the sense that um, religious affiliation is on the rise in um, Western culture, because it's actually on the decline. But I think that religion isn't necessarily organized religion in terms of Christianity or Islam, but rather the the attachment or identification within ideology that is, is all answering, right? So the idea that whatever Question you have about life, or whatever issue you come up with, in life, or whatever problem can be solved by your ideology. Like your ideology has the answer, which is the exact opposite of the scientific method, which, where everything can be um, solved everything by the individual the level. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Everything is questioned, right? So you take you take that singular aspect of logos or enlightenment thinking, which is questioning, and you impose that on everything, and then you get postmodernism. Like always, question grand narratives. That's the first part of postmodernism, which is which is good. Don't don't define yourself by grand narratives. But then you get the extension of that into there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as a grand narrative. Every subjective interpretation of reality is valid. Everybody's lived experience is valid. And you end up with different tribal groups that all think that their their viewpoints or their worldviews are, are the way that the world is and are equally valid to other peoples. And you get, again, warring religions or warring ideologies, whether that be political in nature, or actual organized religion.
2: Yep. And uh, to build off of that, uh, I have a quote that kind of really touches into that. The truly intelligent person is the one who can pretend to be a fool in front of a fool who pretends to be intelligent. And what I think that really does kind of speak on is going back to the the real uh, beginning of Alex's conversation, talking about the leaders and, and how they kind of do create a little bit of this problem. The leaders need to set a precedent because they're the ones that are, you know, sitting in front of you and telling you that they know the solution to things rather than taking into account the other side, which we've seen uh, over the last decade has become a huge problem. We're not taking in the other side's opinion. We're basically talking over each other at this point um, to the point where uh, liberalism isn't really even a thing anymore. It's it's kind of a, a thing of the past where we used to actually think of liberalism as taking into account both sides, consistently trying to change our views on things. And now it's, it's become almost dogmatic on both ends to the point where we can't learn from each other. Um, and I think that is one of the most important parts that goes into that whole education idea of uh, Socrates' uh, uh, position, because without, discussing with each other, without taking in each other's ideas, we can't grow and actually learn a better way of doing things. Because the reality is, we, we know little that is true. And everything is basically up in the air, and we're in a huge science experiment. And if we don't work together to figure that out by taking in both sides, we're going to crash and burn on one side of the ship, and while the other is going to have to come down with us with no choice.
0: Nick, you mentioned leaders. Now, what incentive would a leader have to hold the responsibility that you talk about when their current methods are working so well?
2: In this current climate, none. Um, power is power, and money is the incentive for most politicians these days. I I know of maybe a list on my hand. I could list on my hand about as many politicians as I know that are realistic and actually want good change whereas most are honestly just talking heads for their political party they're pushing their ideology they believe that their side is right Uh, i really don't think that we have true uh good intentioned politicians because as i said earlier somebody who says that they know that they have the right answer typically you don't really want to give that person the you know, the right attention, the, the right person to give the attention to is the person who doesn't know, doesn't think that they know the right answer, but has the time to talk and try and solve something with a group of diverse ideas.
0: But someone like that just would never get elected.
2: Right, because right now our political system is set up and our education is set up and our social media is set up to kind of give these people who think they have the right ideas a pedestal because it's so attractive to right now be on one side and and have all of your your uh, uh cards in a deck can't remember the right <laughs> metaphor for that one but, but ducks in a row ducks in a ducks row ducks in a row thank you yep yep that's the one eggs um, in a basket i don't know <laughs> eggs in a basket i could have picked 20 different ones but uh <laughs> um but you know that's attractive to the everyday uh American constituent because we're not, um, giving them the incentive to critically think our education system isn't, uh, telling people or showing people how to critically think they're not, it's almost become bias, in my opinion, um, yeah. to the point where, you know, we're, we're putting people through liberal arts college and we're allowing them to, you know, pick and choose whatever the heck they want. Um, and come out with a degree they might not even flourish in, and that's not that's not liberalism anymore. That's it's it's completely different.
0: Yeah, and that's just for people who are going to college. A lot of people cannot afford to go to college, and right. so, you know, for some people, it's just not the the best decision to make. The opportunity costs is too much. So, you know, this comes back to the this point which Socrates was trying to make hundreds and hundreds of years ago about the fact that there should be a systematic education system for every single voter. However, what we see, not just here in the United States, but globally, is that once you become a voter, suddenly that education system disappears. Suddenly it's yeah. up to you. Right. What's, what's your proposal to, or a proposal or a way of thinking to, to solve that problem?
1: Touching on what you just said and then also cycling back to what you asked about incentives for leadership, when you standardize or formalize or regulate an education system, the problem is that you've created a lever of power, right? And government in general, the more control a government has or the more regulations a government has, more programs, the more the government interferes in your life, the more levers of power that are available. And when the founders created our country, they had multiple options in terms of how they were going to organize the government. You have monarchies, you have oligarchies, which are pretty much the same thing where power is invested in a a few people. And then the opposite end of the scale would be anarchism, which is everybody is completely and totally individually powerful. Um, And the the idea was to deadlock or hard stop us somewhere in between to protect citizens' rights to individual liberty without having to worry about murdering your neighbor and them or your neighbor at murdering you and stealing your farm because they want it right which is anarchy so protecting unalienable or individual rights but allowing the most limited expression of government possible i think it was senator ram paul who said something to the i'm paraphrasing here because i can't remember the exact quote but something to the effect of never forget that the constitution was written to restrain citizens behavior I'm sorry, never forget that the Constitution was not written to restrain citizens behavior, but rather written to restrain government's behavior. So you limit the levers of power so that politicians and leaders aren't incentivized to control the levers of power. One of the problems with a regulated or formal education system or mandated education system is it is a lever of power. We kind of see that nowadays, as Nick just touched on, especially in higher learning where there's a lot of degrees degrees or programs of studies that offer students indoctrination as opposed to education it teaches them how to or what to think rather than how to think and there's no the the market doesn't accept the the product that is being offered but it doesn't matter because it's subsidized by the government it's guaranteed the, the loans that you're taking out for that that degree that program that you're studying are guaranteed by the government so there's no there's no there's no kickback from the system. If a lot of people majored in a study that was unusable in once they graduated, once they came into the the market system, eventually that degree would go, would become obsolete. People would stop majoring in it because they couldn't find a living. But you're never going to have that happen if you have guaranteed loans via subsidization of the government. Because it it doesn't matter how much the degree costs or what you're going to actually gain, what the net gain is after you graduate with that degree. Because the the college can charge whatever it wants and it's guaranteed and you can apply for a loan. That there's no way that in a normal banking system that you have the credit creditworthiness to actually um, get a loan like that in a normal private system. You can get a loan like that, go to school for four or six years, graduate, and then not be able to find a job in the marketplace because of the fact that this degree is essentially useless. So I think the limiting the levers of power in general is is always a, a good thing for society in general because you have a limit on the amount of power that people can grab right you don't have an incentivization for politicians to say whatever is appealing to the masses you have less demagoguery if you have less levers of power for people to to control or to hold on to
0: then how do you educate the voter educating
1: the voter is a i would say a community issue it's honestly i think it's deeper than just a community issue it's a familial issue it's it's a deeper so the surface level talk of politics is always around policy and around how things affect people's lives. I think philosophy often gets ignored, right? The the deeper ideas of of what you're learning. I mean, rationality a lot of the, yeah, rationality itself. Exactly. And I think that that goes back to you know, what I was saying about postmodernism, um, because the biggest, I would say, the biggest differentiation between Enlightenment thinking or Enlightenment rationale or critical rational thinking logos. Or the idealization of logos as the supreme way of thinking versus postmodernism is the idea that in enlightenment thinking, you acknowledge the fact that there is a truth. You may never know the truth, but there is a definitive reality, a truth that you can ascribe or work towards via discourse with someone. So if you're on one side of a spectrum, of belief, and someone else is on the other side of a spectrum of belief, if you both ascribe to enlightenment thinking, you recognize the fact that the truth, the reality, is probably somewhere in between. And by having a discourse, you can both improve your position towards that middle ground and uncover what the truth is via working together, right? Postmodernism says that there is no such thing as objective truth. So when you're left with no objective truth, what incentive do you have to have discourse with the other side? Why would you talk to somebody else Who doesn't believe your worldview and we see this in the in the stigmatization of political discourse nowadays you can't you're not supposed to i think it was the washington post like released a list of like topics not to talk about at thanksgiving um recently the past couple weeks and like you're not supposed to sit down and have a discussion with your own family about politics that's insane to me who else are you supposed to talk about with them you're your family, your immediate community should be the, the closest people in your life to have these conversations with. And if you don't have a chance to have these conversations, how do you uncover what is true? And why would you even be incentivized to? The other side is just, is just evil. They're, they're wrong. And your worldview is just as correct as theirs is. And if, if, no, if there is no objective truth to work towards together, there is no harmonization goal. All you have is people fighting over levers of power. And when you have so many levers of power, when you have a strong centralized government, you have two parties or two groups or two tribes of people fighting over these levers of power to make sure that their group comes out on top so that they're not, you know, oppressed. And that that isn't really what the goal of the the government was when it was set up the way it was. It was to encourage discourse. It was specifically designed to encourage gridlock or deadlock and to encourage discourse as a result. You couldn't get something done if the other side didn't also acquiesce to it.
0: Right. We wanted a slow, sluggish system to keep the power of the government check. But I want to throw the, the same question which I threw at Alex, at you, Nick, and hear what you have to say.
2: Sorry, repeat the question?
0: As Alex stated before, if we were to give the government the power to have systematic education for all voters, then right. we would be giving them access to an extremely powerful tool. Well, how do we prevent that tyranny, but at the same time ensure that our voters are being educated?
2: Education itself is also an issue because you're going to have people who are just completely unwilling to learn in the first place. Um, So that's kind of a barrier that we have to get over, which I think honestly applies to a majority of uh, the people who decide to go out and vote. Not everyone actually is educated and we can't really, I don't think, Force feed education. So it's really going to come down to how do we teach people to be willing to learn and how do we not turn to demagoguery is really to not give populists and postmodernism a stage. We need to stop, you know, allowing people to point fingers and say that the other side is completely wrong. That's apparently attractive today and it goes against all rationale. And I thought that people would see that right off the bat, and it seems as though that's missing.
0: You Um, know, what's funny is, I feel, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, I just want to kind of get this in, but I feel like when I do talk to people on a more personal level, I I find that most people are quite rational. However, it seems that every time we have these major events such as the election come up, it's the the tribal mentality, the groupthink suddenly surfaces like never before, it's just You see everyday normal citizens, everyday normal people suddenly devolve into a very primal instinct.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, actually, I have an example that uh, just happened the other day. My friend was talking about how back when he was a child, he was hanging out with his neighborhood friends. And when he would hang out with this one individual uh, alone, they were the best of friends. And then when they hung out with all the other neighborhood kids and them together... Uh, he treated him very badly. And what I kind of thought about that situation was it was kind of like an alpha mentality around everybody. He's trying to put them down. Same thing with discussions. You put a third person in a room, you now have an audience. You now have somebody that you are also trying to convince while you have a discussion with somebody else. And I think that's what's going on with politics is, again, we're playing as a popularity contest. It's 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 bites. It's minutes of... of uh, words that really impact somebody's emotions um, rather than making them think and we're playing for an audience rather than trying to just have somebody think about what we're saying and I think that's the gap that we need to bridge and really work on
0: but what's the incentive for our current leaders and for our current populace to change what's the because at the end of the day if there's There, there is no
2: incentive Well, it comes from the people. We give them the power. We give them the decisions. So when it comes down to that, the incentive is, are we going to vote them in or not at the end of the day? And that is hard because that's coming down to what I said earlier.
1: I think that's being a little idealistic. I think the way that our government currently is, again, I think this goes back to the size and strength of the federal government right now. The way that the government currently is, you're not going to be able to vote anybody in who wants to limit the size and scope. Of the power of the government how are you going to elect someone who wants to cut social security or cut taxes in a significant substantial way or get rid of some of these departments of government that are extraneous or useless when there's tons of people who are employed in those and tons of lobbyists and special interest groups and going back to what what Rich said about people devolving back to tribalism and kind of switching from this rational mindset that you see in private to these these mottos or these slogans or these bumper stickers and these service level arguments. I think that has to do with like the squeakiest wheel gets the grease, that whole argument about you have these small minority people who are activists who kind of claim that they represent an entire population and make a lot of noise. And so politicians will, will pander to those groups because they are afraid of, um, kind of like negative PR, right? Like if somebody Claims that they're being socially oppressed, or they claim that they're being hurt in some way to a politician. The politician is obviously going to tell them, "Don't worry, like I'm going to do exactly what you want from me. I got you." In order to to avoid that negative PR and to get that that vote. Um, But real quick, I just I want to cycle back to the education things. I don't know if I actually gave an answer on this, but I did want to touch on that. I, I I criticized the idea of a regulated or a centralized or a you know federal mandated education system and Rishu asked like how do we educate average citizens or the average voter in that case and i think that that to me is really just an answer of free market competition and pragmatism right so this is this also goes back to how our our country is um organized as a united states as opposed to a single homogenous body the idea is that 50 different states can all enact different policies local communities local governments local counties can enact different education systems and the competition in the market will prove what wins out like the best ideas will win once they are pragmatically implemented and aren't held up or propped up by government regulation which keeps a bad system in place I mean we saw this with the financial crisis in 2008 when they had the bailouts propping up a, a system that is failing is always a bad idea even if it is going to cause like short-term, hurt for a lot of people letting bad systems fail is good because it allows good systems to flourish so to directly answer the education question you educate citizens by having differing ideas on what education means and if i live in wyoming and my education system is pursuing a certain course of education and you live in idaho and your education system is pursuing a different course of education we see which is a better source of a better source of education based on um, the results in reality, like what happens, which which economy prospers more, which citizens are happiest, which citizens are more successful, which which communities produce more goods, things like that, right? Pragmatism, like the idea that it doesn't matter how good an idea is, if it gets kicked back and once you implement it in reality, then it's not a good idea, right? It doesn't matter the intention behind the idea. So for me, again, this just, this just goes back to like decentralized power, allowing for that competition of ideas if it could go all the way down to an individual level, I think that'd be best, but I don't I don't see how that works on an individual level without anarchy. So
0: yeah, so as you were talking about these different labs, right? These 50 different labs really. Labs we, we to, <laughs> I like that. We have to remember that these are not your nice scientific labs. They do not have controlled variables, really. Each of these states has their own conditions. Each of these states have their own resources and their own scarcities. Therefore, it is impossible really to say, look at an education system in Idaho and say, okay, you know what? That's working better because Idaho's economy is booming. So we need to implement that in Oregon as well. And also- Well, I don't, I'm, like not that, in, I'm not in
1: favor of that at all. At all. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think what you just said is is exactly the reason I am in favor of of that system is because- the education system that works in New York City might not be the same education system that is good in Idaho like the the idea that if you live in Idaho in a small rural town that you need to go to a you know a four year degree school and then go to graduate school to get a masters in some obscure like liberal arts study or or IT economy like if you want to move somewhere where that degree is useful then that's great but if Idaho wants to implement an education system that is more you know, trade school oriented, that is absolutely fine if that works better in that economy. And, and again, this isn't, I wouldn't say, and I don't think that you would have like Idaho just teaches farming, right? And New York city just teaches like digital media or something like that. I don't think that would happen. I think you would have in Idaho somewhere in the state, a school that specializes in digital media or contracting or whatever else that, that, that niche subject is. And people, you would have a pull for that. I just think that and the education is a weird one, right? Because education is like the primary school things. There are certain subjects you need to learn. I, under, I understand that. And I, I basically agree with um, low-level regulation in the education system. I just think that the way that the education system is set up right now, it doesn't allow enough competition in the marketplace. There isn't enough ability for for good ideas to flourish and bad ideas to fail.
0: Nick, you want to take the space?
2: Yeah, I actually... I kind of agree with Alex. I mean, trade schools are definitely a way that we can um, kind of refine education. Uh, trade schools are cheaper. They're more specialized. They give somebody a job that they can almost guaranteed get out of uh, school with a job. Um, so that really all does kind of set people up financially and, and, and such. And if we really want to make people more willing to uh, go out and learn individually, Um, and soak up their knowledge outside of the educational realm, reading books, watching podcasts, going on YouTube. All of that really does help if they're financially secure. So um, encouraging people to take more calculated routes, uh, I I believe would really encourage the populace to become uh, more refined as far as their education goes. Because what we've seen with the rise of these liberal arts schools and all the BS degrees going on and stuff like that, uh, we we really lost our rationale as far as thinking goes, and we've really grown to become a tribe. Because if you think about it, the people in this 2020 election, a majority of Trump's voters were uneducated, whereas a majority of Biden's voters were educated. And I'm not saying that in the terms of Trump's voters were uneducated as in they were stupid. I'm just saying That's where they got their knowledge. They got their knowledge from wherever they got their knowledge from. And then Joe Biden, uh, his constituents mainly got their knowledge from what they soaked up through the education system. So I feel as though that could kind of correlation causation here, but I feel as though that could kind of show you in a way where the education system right now is kind of leaning towards. And that's why I think trade systems really help kind of refine that. That's just one specific way we could go about that, but also just from the family and from the community, just talking about economics and, and, and teaching uh, people you know how to manage their lives better, because I, I feel as though people are just going day to day and not really thinking about their future anymore. And whereas back in the '50s, I mean this was a prominent time where people really did set up their, their lives uh, through the economy and really did understand the system
0: of America. I mean, did they really understand the system, though? Because I've heard many times people comment on certain subjects which I might have expertise in. And, you know, I'm talking about prominent people. I'm talking about people who are currently in the Senate, for example. Right. And I hear them and I go, well, I don't think this person is as knowledgeable as they think they are on the subject. And they're making policies regarding it. Right. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean to have to have senators enact policies on like nutrition policies is just a a, <laughs> a specific like sore point for me because Americans in general are so misinformed on nutrition and you have the horrible you know initial food dietary guidelines that came out that have been since revised over and over and over again and what you get is you get bad policy enacted by people that are that mean well but then kind of inform you know mass public opinion or mass knowledge on these subjects and then you get a bunch of people who are misinformed because they've been taught um you know bad information um but Risha, I want to ask you specifically how, how what what would your answer be for educating the voter because I do I do see an issue here a problem here and I don't know you know what the answer is because at, at heart I am a completely free market capitalist and objectivist so I would obviously like to see as much competition as possible but I do understand the need for for certain standardization because it's it's unrealistic to expect someone who grows up in a small rural town in the middle of nowhere to not be offered the chance to explore higher learning or STEM subjects that they may not have access to and just expect them to go to a trade school and you know work on the farm or whatever like their parents have done for generations. That doesn't really provide opportunities for people to individually express themselves. So how would you what would you like to see in terms of the education system?
0: Really I want to start from the very beginning, from primary education, and I believe the system we have set up already promotes rationality to an extent, right? With subjects like mathematics, which are designed designed to train your brain in logic. However, we do need, we absolutely need courses just like how we teach math, just like how we teach English, just like how we teach history. Courses starting from primary education all the way up to high school at the very least, which delve specifically in rationality and specifically in philosophy.
1: Yes, 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 yes. I agree with that one hundred percent.
0: Yep, I believe it will set up set up a basic line of defense, a basic starting line. Really it, it bring it will bring people who are about to go vote well, to the a starting line from which they can begin to jog and would- begin to really learn. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead.
1: I would love to see, like you just mentioned, I would love to see philosophy become standardized in earlier. It's first of all, it's almost not required anywhere in any education system that I know of, unless you major in it in higher learning. I was initially a, a philosophy major for two years in college before I switched my major, and I've always had a deep love of philosophy, but I I was never formally explored anywhere in lower education, and I think it should be a requirement. I mean, if we're gonna require math. And I mean, I had to take calculus in high school. If we're going to require obscure STEM subjects like that, I don't see why you wouldn't require a subject like philosophy, which is just so core to, to living in general. You can apply philosophy to any area of your life, really. And it teaches you, again, how to think and not what to think. And that gives you the tools necessary for higher learning, right? If you go into higher learning with these rational thinking skills, you can then evaluate things that you were taught and make decisions for yourself, as opposed to just accepting um, the knowledge that is handed down to you.
0: One hundred percent. What about you, Nick?
2: Sorry, I repeat the question. <laughs>
1: what do you think about philosophy being ingrained as a part of the education system?
2: Oh yeah, no, I've I've been on that train uh, for a while now. I've everybody I talk to, as far as refining education, I always the first thing I say is include philosophy in education, starting from I mean, be hard to start from grade 1, but um <laughs> we, we can definitely try and put it in somewhere early like 6th grade when we're really starting to read books and stuff like that. Um maybe not Socrates or Aristotle, but uh
0: just you know, just basics, just thinking, yeah. you know, if p equals q and so on and so forth.
2: Right, we can we can teach people how to critically think without having them read a philosopher, but um other than that, I would uh I would say, I don't really see anything else that we could do to encourage that ration.
0: Yeah, okay. you know, going off of that topic, I know, for example, here where where I am at, they start teaching civics, right? They start teaching government in eighth grade. Yeah. However, they never teach you like philosophy. They never teach you the ideas and the methods which actually created that government, Yeah. right? Yep. It's just kind of, here's this date, here's this document, and this was the result of it okay, but where did this document come from? Oh, it was written by that guy okay but what, why did that guy write it? what was he thinking you know it, it's too many wars, too many dates and too much action and not enough food for thought It's memorization
1: as opposed to really like digging into again like you said why like if you're gonna accept the Constitution as your founding document you need to understand the foundational philosophical principles behind it and why that is so important and not having a grounded philosophy, a grounded like moral philosophy underneath your thinking process. Why would you I've I've seen so many people who are in favor of restricting free speech or restricting the Second Amendment, things that I don't understand because to me it's it's if you don't have that base level philosophy of why these things are important, why it's important to secure individual liberty, you're obviously gonna default to authoritarianism. You're gonna default to the idea that somebody else knows better than I do because I'm not that informed. So, therefore, I should listen to them. They're making a good argument, and they're, you know, especially when demagoguery gets involved, because then you're playing on people's emotional cords, their fears, or whatever else, to make them really feel like what you're saying is correct without that deeper analytical thinking. And if you have core philosophy or core foundational principles that are prioritized no matter what, which is the entire idea of a constitutional republic, is the idea that these enumerated rights are paramount to everything else nothing else can supersede these it does not matter and not knowing why that those are so important not holding those in your own moral philosophy as being paramount really leads to this this i would say drifting almost of being able to be attached to any ideology or any movement that makes you feel passionate enough if someone really inflames your passions you're going to join that tribe you're going to join that team and you're going to fight really hard for that team if you don't have that grounding that anchor of moral philosophy
0: 100 and it's not just politics it's not just government but philosophy it it helps you learn how to live really how to take care of yourself how to look at your morality how to take care of your family how to look at education and how to look at the world around you how to analyze it it gives you the tools to start the fire it's it doesn't just hand you the flame, it doesn't just hand you the torch. It tells you, mate, here's electricity or here's stone or here's this and this. Go ahead and light it up. And then from there, once you have those tools, you can you can just go on and conquer the world, really.
2: I do have a question though. Go ahead. In the system, would there be any room for irrationality?
0: Would that be rationality? irrationality. Yes. Well, as you go through the sci- as you go through the, the thinking process, right, the scientific process, you will come up with a premise, and then you will analyze that premise. You'll see, okay, is there any irrationality? Are there any contradictions which are popping up? If there are, then you revise your thesis, and you revise your premises. So ideally, there would be no room for irrationality, but practically, irrationalities will pop up, and it is the job of the rational mind to figure out what that irrationality is and combat it. And suppress it, and try to go back to revision.
2: Do we ever become so rational to the point where we disregard other people? Though I, I feel as though if we just give, going back to what Alex said earlier about making policies about nutrition, if we had given, you know, a nutritionist uh, that position to actually determine uh, what was a good, what were good things for the American people to to eat. You know, who ran the FDA and so on and so forth, then that would be all great and dandy. but how do we determine as citizens who's you know not encouraged by you know evil tendencies and stuff like that? How do we determine who these people are that are actually becoming the I guess the czars of the education positions and stuff? because that's how our government works we We select leaders, people, individuals. So, if we can't think about it as an individual sense, that's going to be really hard to kind of bridge that gap. I don't, I
0: don't really see how. You know, to answer that question now, my one of my favorite philosophers is Immanuel Kant. Right. And one of his principles was the I'm trying to remember this: the formula of humanity or the formula of the ultimate end. Basically, it states that it is morally wrong to treat a rational being. As if it were a tool, but instead, in your maxim, you must treat it as if it is an ultimate end. So basically, you cannot use yourself if you're a rational being, or anyone else who's a rational being, as if they were just a tool. You can't just abuse them, you can't just you know put them in chains, et cetera, et cetera. That's basically what that philosophy is saying. So to answer your question, once again, you know this is going back to the point of studying philosophy and studying moral philosophy as well, and studying someone like Kant and his principles, when when you have people who are experts or people who, like a nutritionist, becoming in charge of the Department of Health or making policies regarding health, if that nutritionist and if the citizenry who votes that nutritionist in are educated in moral philosophy, are educated in that rational mindset, they will make decisions which will be morally correct because rational beings have a tendency heavily affected by morality. It is like gravity to us.
1: Yes, I think that um, one of Kant's greatest contributions um, in the critique of reason or the critique of pure reason was the idea that, like, and this kind of goes into objectivism thinking, right? The idea that um, pure ration- pure reason or pure rationality Could lead you to say something along the lines of, "I need, whatever. I need food. My neighbor has food. There is no rational reason why I shouldn't take that food from him." But that that that's almost in, it's it's a strawman argument in a way because again, like you just said, rationality breeds morality if you take it far enough, right? And the idea that like what is best for my neighbor is best for me, is a rational conclusion because of the fact that human beings are such social creatures and we've achieved the greatest things that we've achieved in history have been cooperative efforts, right? So the idea that, that resources are, or that life is a zero sum game and that I must take in order to have is, I mean, in the age we live in nowadays, there's no reason to believe that because history has proven otherwise, the gross domestic product of the entire world has increased over time, right? You don't have to take from someone else to have that. That is a very old worldview. The idea that in order to expand the wealth of your nation, you must conquer other nations. What rationality and the scientific method and enlightenment thinking gave us was the ability to produce more goods via innovation, via new discoveries, right? The, the ability to create a demand for a new product and then create more wealth and more goods for everybody and the idea that a uh, a rising tide like raises all ships, right? Which is... Which is perfectly apparent. There's so there's this book called Enlightenment Now by Stephen Pinker, and he goes through the ideas that like that while the it is true that in America especially wealth inequality has increased, poverty around the world has actually decreased, and we're we're living in a golden age. Like the world is not headed to bad ends currently. We're living in like the most prosperous and peaceful time in world history, and the UN set a goal to have world poverty by a certain year i think it was 2024 2021 i can't remember don't quote me on that um and they achieved the goal having world poverty before their their set deadline it was like in 2015 i think that they they have world poverty so the idea that we we can't progress together or that we have to you know take from one another um that rationality breeds that kind of line of thinking i don't think is accurate i think that Rationality taken to its furthest extreme, again, like you said, breeds morality because being moral and cooperating with one another is the most rational way of everybody prospering.
0: Right, and that comes back to the ideas of Adam Smith where by pursuing your own self-interest, you actually end up providing good for society, right? Because you're trying to satisfy their demands and their needs to make a profit.
1: So that touches on the idea of like, altruism and Ayn Rand and altruism being a true evil, right? Like there's no man I distrust more than the man who tells me what is good for me. And Nick, I believe you just, you just talked about, what were you just talking about? You said something that I wanted to touch on altruism. about.
2: Ah, oh, damn. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> we'll have to go back and re <laughs> listen to it. But so the idea, the idea that, um, the more levers of power you give someone. And when someone tells you like, Oh, so you were talking about nutrition, Okay, yeah, so right. the idea that like some some super smart nutritionist is going to set guidelines for everyone, there is no reason that anybody else should be telling you exactly what to eat. You should be eating what you think is best for you because again, like you give someone a lever of power and even if the person is the right person to give the lever of power to, the problem with governmental power is governments change and government are nothing but people. There's no, like government isn't a separate entity. It's not a divine being. It's just people people are fallible. And if the wrong people get into office, you now have a lever of power with someone who is telling you that they're going to do good. And whether it's misguided or intentionally deceptive, they could be doing harm or doing bad. So they enact a policy with good intention, but it ends up harming people. And there's many examples of this in history, but I think the most famous one is the in the UK where they had that specific drug. I can't remember what it was that was supposed to treat something, but it ended up with Um, thousands of people who had women sorry thousands of women who had um, pregnancy issues I I, again I can't remember this actual drug so this point is moot at this point but there was a a drug that was approved that was taken in mass numbers and then it ended up being um, very detrimental to their health right so for me this is again a lever of power thing like reducing the size and scope of government to allow people to express themselves individually and have their own freedom at least then like if you do something that harms you, it's your own fault, right? Like you didn't rationally think through or you made a mistake and there's no one to blame but yourself. But if Nick gets into office and does something that harms me, I'm not responsible for that, right? He's That's basically oppression in its purest form.
0: 100%. Pretty good stuff, boys. So we're reaching our time limit. This was a great show. Also, listeners, be on the lookout for Nick and Alex on the Internet Herald, who will be bringing you some new shows. And Nick and Alex, if you have any ideas you want to share about what the show might be about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Alex and I are going to be opening up two podcasts. Um, We're going to be opening up a podcast about health and nutrition. So kind of what we were talking about a little bit here and there uh, in this podcast. So look out for that if you're looking into kind of understanding a little bit more how to get onto a program, workout program, nutrition program, trying to, Uh, Really refine your training, refine your nutrition, and even get motivated on working out and eating right. Uh, And then, Alex, you want to talk about the podcast for politics?
1: Yeah, so um, just a little segue Nick and I are both uh, certified personal trainers um, with various certifications and training in nutrition, health, fitness, and uh, both kinesiology majors as well. Um, So this kind of sounds disingenuous because we were just talking about not a Believing in authority all the time and doing your own rational thinking, our <laughs> advice and our opinions that we present in our health and fitness podcast are 100% our own and you should do your own research, obviously, in terms of the other podcast, um, it's gonna be more political oriented, we're definitely gonna be talking about current events and current affairs, and giving our opinions, we're gonna see if we can get one more person to join to give a, a contrary point of view. And then hopefully um, I'll be back on the reshow show as well to delve into more, some more philosophical topics because philosophy is my main passion. So this was a lot of fun getting to talk philosophy.
0: Awesome, man. Awesome. And folks, be on the lookout for that. I think there's also some other links. Any other places you want to shout out, Nick and Alex?
1: Uh, no, that's about it. Armchair Philosophy it doesn't exist right now, but I'm going to make it right after this. So there <laughs> you go.
0: <laughs> and what about you, Nick? What about your fitness business?
2: uh oh yeah uh if you guys want to check me out again at at nick becht fit b-e-c-h-t is becht no spaces on instagram uh personal trainer as alex said and certified nutrition coach
0: awesome thank you folks for listening to the re show you can check out the internet herald our links are in the description we are on a lot of different platforms about 11 so just really pick your favorite and follow Please give us a rating. It helps us grow. You can leave suggestions on places like YouTube or maybe email us. Thank you for listening once again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nick and Alex, for coming on. Have a great day. Goodbye. Although
2: I probably shouldn't.